0: A Gay and a Non-Gay is a podcast from James Barr and Dan Hudson. They're like a lovely little couple,
1: except they're not. Hey,
0: welcome to A Gay and a Non-Gay. I'm James, I'm gay, that's Dan, he's non-gay.
1: Yes, welcome along.
0: Today, we're joined by Reverend Richard Coles, who is a legend. He was in this amazing queer 80s band, The Communards. You'll know their massive tune, Don't Leave Me This Way.
1: Talk me through some of their other tunes that you...
0: Um don't leave me this way again that was a good one and i can't believe you've left me this way their third single yeah
1: and since 2005 he's been a church he's been a church (laughs) if you let me finish james
0: (laughs) What a transformation. (laughs) He's been a Church of England priest. Yeah, I mean, this is a really important conversation because Richard is gay and he was married to another priest, David, for nine years. And you'd imagine that being a priest and gay is pretty difficult. And we'll talk all about that. Plus, we chat to Richard about the devastating loss of his husband, David.
1: So, yeah, we're obviously going to talk about... Uh, david's battle but we're also going to talk about richard's battle um, with the other famous celebrity priest in the uk kate botley who's stealing all his work it has got to stop kate
0: and if you've ever needed ammunition like me to use against homophobic religious people richard has this in spades
1: yes so here is the very reverend richard coles
0: welcome to a gay and a non-gay
1: How are you doing all good thanks how are you how come
0: you? you've had your hair
2: cut
1: both <laughs> of you
0: uh, well the hairdressers opened a week ago so i had mine cut this week
1: yeah i got mine done on sunday it wasn't uh, sorry to disappoint you it wasn't specifically for this but everything's wow, reopened so that is
0: so rude
2: dan Anyway, <laughs> i can take it
0: we're so excited to have you here richard you are britain's favorite priest
2: well it's not a not a long list i have to say <laughs> Well, <laughs> there's you, there's... um it's me and Kate Botley, basically. Kate Botley, yeah. And she's taking all my jobs now. It's I silly. keep telling her to get her tanks off my lawn, but every day <laughs> there's just more. Have you got your eye on, uh, on Gogglebox? I love Gogglebox. Well, I kind of go in and out of Gogglebox. It's been on as long as Coronation Street, it seems to me now, and I keep forgetting who's not in it anymore. I've had that weird experience, though, this is just so meta, of watching people... Watching Gogglebox of people watching me. Wow, that must be weird. It's kind of so postmodern, it's ancient So they're something. watching, you're watching I'm watching, watching Gogglebox, you. and they're watching me on Gogglebox. <laughs> what are they saying about you? Not nice things, I have to say. <laughs> oh, no. I think really? they're down very well. The Malones, I think, were very harsh. I didn't see it. Someone told me. Was it your Strictly appearance? What was it they were? Oh, no, I wouldn't dare watch Gogglebox if that was on. No, I'll tell you what it was. <laughs> I was doing a thing with Richard and Judy and that nice woman who did win, Strictly, Stacey Thing. Um, <laughs> and uh, it was awful because we were talking about George Michael. They said, did you know George Michael? And I did because, you know, in the 80s, I was in a pop band. And they said, oh, "Where? Did, how did you know him? And I said, well, I met him at Elton John's 40th birthday party. And that's the sort of bit they came on. So there was a vicar going, oh, I met George Michael at Elton John's 40th birthday party. And as you can imagine, that um, was uh, a cruising for a bruising. So, who, who does he think he is? Archbishop of Canterbury, that kind of thing. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Halfway through the dinner, I nipped through to have a look at this disco, and the DJ was on his own playing a few records, and it was George Michael.
0: It's a big name drop there, isn't it? Oh, it went to Elton's Farts here. Yeah. You know. Do you think you'll remember him? No, will he, Folk. Don't Leave Me This Way by the Commonards, your song. It's a huge gay anthem, but. Then you became a priest. So could you just sort of talk us through how that journey
2: happened? I was a chorister when I was a kid. So I grew up in the church and, you know, there sort of every day and um, kind of chunk of Sundays as well. So I, I knew the lie of the land. I loved the music, although I was an atheist at the age of eight, so I thought it was all nonsense. But I kind of liked the atmosphere. At the end of my 20s, which got a bit tempestuous, there was a summer in Ibiza, which is a bit of a blur, but somehow I came home and crawled into a church and found it to be a more congenial place than I thought it was. Not the belly of the beast, but actually more like my sort of home territory, I think. And uh, I just liked it. And then, of course, what you discover is things are rarely what they seem. And if you thought of the church as a sort of some of that was kind of inimical to gay people, which is in lots of ways, but actually lots of gay people find a way there and live their lives quite happily. So that's a very shortened version. You want to know about Ibiza, don't you? I do. <laughs> um, what happened? <laughs> I don't really know. I bought a speedboat. I know that, but, oh we've can't, but we don't know what happened to it. <laughs> one of the things that was really great about that was that it made gay people and straight people play together. And any awkwardness or suspicion was dissolved partly by MDMA but actually just by discovering each other and having fun with each other yeah and it was great
0: now your book explores the grief that you've been through after losing your husband to alcoholism and it's a massive thing alcoholism that isn't really discussed in gay male conversation and I certainly know that I've personally turned to alcohol when I've been struggling with mental health and some of that is probably to do with being gay and also I think queer love and loss is is also not really something that is talked about and explored so it's amazing that that you've that you put that out there so I just wanted to talk about that really and and I wonder as well like do you think all of this is more isolating for gay people?
2: I think there is a long relationship between gay men and alcohol and that's been the case since the year dot and I think partly that's because lots of what we do we do in places where you drink pubs clubs bars right I think it's partly also because and it pains me to say this I'm six I'm 59 and I look to the generations behind me and I think and I really hope you had an easier time of it growing up than I did and in lots of ways that's true but I do think gay men I can't speak for lesbians particularly but I do think gay men do sustain some psychological damage very often and I think people who are psychologically damaged often look for some way of palliating it and alcohol is probably the most readily available drug to do that it was certainly true with David I think that one of the ways he dealt with the damage that he had sustained was to drink and go nuts on dance floors and the clubs and the pubs and everything And, you know, in your 20s, you can do that without causing too much damage, I think. Although, actually, there's more and more evidence that you can do yourself a lot of damage. But if you keep up that kind of drinking into your 30s, it starts getting difficult. And then in your 40s, it'll kill you, which is what happened to David. Do you think some of that is to do with the the damage then that
0: he faced when he was younger for being gay?
2: Well, I think David grew up in a very religious Um, Family and a religious family that I think would have found the idea of somebody being gay kind of really difficult. Although I have to say, they've all done brilliantly with it now and they're all fine and they're no longer part of the religious world that they were part of. But I think, you know, if you're young and you're trying to kind of gain a sense of your identity and how you fit into the world, if a part of you doesn't really seem to fit with the narrative that the people around you are offering, that could be quite tricky for some. Some people thrive in it, but I think for lots of people, it's difficult. And it was for David, I think. And I think he, one of the things it did was, I think it knocked his confidence. And sometimes he would drink if he felt unsure of himself, it would give him, I don't know, some courage or something. Although he wasn't lacking in courage. And all of it was within the tolerances until it wasn't. And by the time it wasn't, it was wreaking havoc. In his life, I mean, not just physically, but socially, because he could be obnoxious when he was drunk. And again, you can kind of get away with being obnoxiously drunk if it's three in the morning and you're in heaven. But not great at a vicarage tea party, let me tell you. Which heaven are we talking about? Good one, Dan. (laughs) Such a good one. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Hey.
1: Would he be like, uh, you know, delivering communion and and, and getting on the getting on
2: the wine? Well, no. I mean, he he sort of drank crazily, so he would binge, and then the binges became more frequent, and then they kind of joined up, and then he did all the things that people with alcohol addiction do, which is he would try his best to disguise it. From me, from everybody else, I think from himself too. I remember we had some, somebody come around from Christian Aid, and it was the summer, and we had an ice machine. So I filled it with ice, but he said, "I don't think this is just ice, actually." And David had sort of surreptitiously doctored the ice in the ice machine with vodka. So <laughs> he was um, he was doing all those <laughs> things that people do, and you would, and also we had a, a boat, and he would go to the boat sometimes, and. Uh, we make light of it, really. But by the time it was out of control, it was pretty awful. And he changed the way he drank. So he stopped binging. And then he started doing the sort of sipping all day thing. So he wasn't getting pissed. And you think, oh, this is getting better. But actually, the sipping all day thing is really dangerous. Because the alcohol just minces up your liver, your pancreas, your heart. And he did got all the things that people addicted to alcohol get. And in the end, he had an internal bleed. And that killed him at 43.
0: A gay and a non-gay. You said you never once thought that you would be going to hell or no. that being gay was a sin and your quote is I have never not even for a moment felt like hellfire or even a twinge of divine disapprovement would be mine as a consequence of my sexuality or relationship with David. So how did you find this clarity
2: when so many people don't? It was just never a, an issue for me. I mean, I came late to faith when I was in my 20s, so I'd had a bit of time to sort out sexuality. And I did have, you know, I was at an all-boys English public school when if it had been known that you were gay, you would have been mercilessly treated. So I learnt the arts of subterfuge quickly. And, you know, you have to unlearn, unlearn that stuff because this is not a dark secret. It's simply a variation on the universal theme of sexuality. We know this. We didn't really know it then. So getting yourself healed with that is a job of work. But I'd done that by the time, or I was well on the way, by the time religion came along. And I, and I always knew that, I mean, with David and me, we had a wonderful, we loved each other. We were like other people who love each other. And I think there's nothing in that which I would, for a moment, regret or think reprehensible at all. I mean, I have arguments with this about people who think that simply because the love was between two men Uh, it couldn't somehow be holy or a means of grace when so obviously it is and that of course is where it's really into the sort of church the people in the church who struggle with this and I don't want to just disparage them because it is for reasons that are sincere and genuinely held and I know that lots of people who think that are agonized about it because they don't want to be the bad guys right and also They're the ones who have to face their kids over the breakfast table saying, Dad, why are you homophobic? You know, that's not something people relish, I don't think. So they struggle with that. But the fact is their kids do look at them over the breakfast table and say, why, Dad, are you homophobic? Because their friends are cool. Their friends' parents are cool. Their friends might be same-sex parents. It's just not a thing. And the reason it's just not a thing is that you see that it's no different. There is nothing in the same-sex relationship which is morally uh, any different from that which is in the uh, opposite so, or whatever, I can't remember the language you know what I mean This is obviously not exactly in line with the
1: Church of England's stance on, on things Yeah Have you got into a lot of arguments with you know the high brass of the, of the Anglican Brigade?
2: Well I'm too low in the food chain to get into arguments with the top brass which is a great reason to stay in the low in the food chain actually but I mean there are lots of people on the other side of the argument who I do talk to some of whom are have become friends actually. And those conversations at first were really difficult. Then after a while, you find a way of doing them, which means you're both still standing at the end of it. And I've never had a conversation with anyone which has made me doubt for a second my position on that.
0: When Dan and I have had these conversations with people that are anti-gay, That are religious will often bring up all the things that the Bible says they shouldn't be doing that they're still doing, like wearing a mix of fabrics, etc. Are those the kind of arguments that you fire back at them?
2: I'm just bored shitless of those (laughs) arguments. I've had them for so long. I'm not having them anymore. Can't be asked. (laughs) So the argument for me is not what does the Bible say. The argument is why does this thing the Bible say mean so much when that thing the Bible says doesn't mean so much. Why are we picking on this thing as the one around which everything hinges? Because the Bible is not a book. It's a library. It's full of material. Some of that material doesn't always line up with the other material. So as soon as you start thinking of it as a sort of holy handbook, which tells you in black and white everything you need to know, and there is a tradition. that's the case when you start thinking this is actually the product of thousands of years of people reflecting very deeply on issues which are fundamental and profound and often very difficult they've come up with conflicting accounts of how they do that well then i think maybe you can start making some progress but even saying that would get my ass kicked from here to canterbury
1: Talking of Church of England policy,
2: uh, no one talks of Church of England. What are you doing on your gay web thing? Talking Church of England policy. Yeah, why are you bringing that?
1: Up? I was gonna get. I was gonna get into the the celibacy issue, basically. Okay. Um. So I was gonna ask you. Obviously, that's what you and David were, I believe. Yeah. Do you ever think that the Church of
2: England is gonna get rid of this ridiculous policy? I hope so. I think it might be over. I, my my fear is is that. The window of opportunity for the Church of England really making a change about that has perhaps closed. And that the people who I I fear that the the, the Conservatives will prevail, actually, because there's been a long debate about this and there were signs of change. But I'm not entirely optimistic that by the time we actually settle the argument, it will have been too late. I don't know.
0: What are these teachings? Is this for gay relationships or is this for like relationships between? Well, people?
2: the defenders of the position would be that the church on the authority of the Bible and Jesus Christ and the tradition and everything. It's serious weight here. It's that sexual activity be, should be restricted to a man and a woman who are married. Now, I get it. I can get why that would for many people be an ideal. But the fact is it doesn't fit onto the reality of people's lives as it would claim to so then you need to do something think something understand what's the and, definition though of sleeping with a man
0: well do, you know, they actually
2: there are really are definitions they it comes down that I mean, you get this absurd uh, embarrassing statement where people start talking about genital acts right so there are you know the church being the church it needs to define these things so it it does but what it fails to capture is people loving each other and if we're not an organisation, or tradition, which upholds and supports and rejoices in people loving each other, well, we need to really think about what we're doing.
0: And I mean, it's not really, I can't ask you the question. I'm not going to ask you the question. You can ask me I've, any
2: question you like. I might not be able to answer it, but you can ask Well, I feel
0: it. like I've, I'm sure I read something or saw something in The Guardian once that suggested that you weren't 100% on board with that and that you might have you know, done the odd other thing.
2: <laughs> I'm not on board with it at all. I, I observe it because I have to. Actually, David and I, we weren't always celibate, of course we weren't, but it went there. It got there. Again, that's not unusual in long-term relationships. So in a way, we were kind of, when it was a thing that had to be declared, we were okay. But I don't approve of it. I don't think the church, requiring people to be celibate who are not, who do not have celibacy as part of their thing, is, is just ridiculous and mm. people will just ignore it and again i, I don't make you sound like some kind of i'm not a kind of hot-headed renegade i'm a, a conventional rather timid person and i would rather be in line with the church i would rather that held together i would rather be a good boy with my prefect badge and a star but i cannot pretend that that is not the case it doesn't fit reality And it damages people. And we really shouldn't be doing that.
0: Two unlikely friends take on the world. So were you in New York during the HIV and AIDS epidemic? I
2: was to and fro, but most of it. So the first, it came for me into two peaks, 86, 87, 88. And then the worst one was sort of early to mid nineties. And I was back in London then. It's very interesting. I've just been revisiting the eighties with, it's a sin watching that and, uh, it wasn't, it wasn't a drama to me. It was a documentary. In fact, it was home movies. I knew those people. I lived that life. And it was just really interesting to remember what it was like to be gay in the 80s, in that little golden age between gay liberation, making your life livable, and HIV arriving and fucking everything up. So that's when I arrived in London and went through the, you know, the AIDS epidemic, which was dreadful. But my heart and soul is there, and everything... I learned about love, solidarity, community, all these things which are part of my daily life here as a vicar, I learned then. And to me, that's a sort of continuum. What's different now is I don't consider myself to be someone who wants to live exclusively in a world defined by my sexuality. I just want to take my place in the world alongside everybody else, doing all the things I do. The other thing is, you know, my... Twenties and my thirties were defined by activism. Hurrah. It was a great time to be doing that kind of thing. And great victories were won. And long may they prevail. But you pay a price for it, for fighting all the time. And now I'm too old. And also I don't want to fight all the time. Not because I don't fancy a fight. I really fancy a fight (laughs) sometimes. But because of the cost to you in wearing armour all the time. I don't want to wear armor all the time. I want to be vulnerable. I want to know what it's like to hurt and for that to be something that I can integrate into my life. And one of the things I think, I know about the culture wars at the moment, is how angry and how fighty everybody is. And I get it, lots of good reasons to want to fight. We live in a very divided world, but you pay a price for it. You have to have somewhere, a place, a person, a circle, you can go to where you could take the armour off and allow your wounds to be what they are and to heal, you know,
1: that's really important I think. Right. You are fighting aren't you just just by the, the fact that you're a gay
2: priest? Well time. not really because I mean you come, I came here, middle England, thinking oh my god what are they going to make of a gay vicar and you realise that I am literally not the only gay in the village so it's an, a myth you see, you come to the heartland of middle England where it's all Union Jacks and Conservative Views, Big C, Small C. But actually, life is lived everywhere and always has been. And when you get to know a community well, you realise that, A, not only are you not the only gay in the village, you wouldn't have been the only gay in the village in 1500, actually. That the whole story, you know, the story of homosexuality, same-sex attraction, all that stuff, is not something that was just cooked up in the late 60s, the language was, but actually the phenomenon has always been there, I think. Was it in the Bible? I don't know, lots of people would want to queer the Bible or, you know, there's homoerotic stuff in there, David and Jonathan. But actually most of our history is unknown, clandestine, hidden, because if you were to declare it, the penalties for it were so hideous. And I think in my own past, members of my own family who, looking at them now, I think, well, the only thing that makes your life make sense is that you were LGBT. But that was not something that could ever be, well, I don't know, perhaps it was, I hope so. But in terms of, you know, the kind of official family version of stuff, um, was never really spoken about or made explicit. And I think that's true not only for families, but for societies too. I mean, in in this community, there were... I know for a fact that there were people long before me who were having a life like mine, but they, the traces they left of it were so faint or not preserved that we can only really sort of imagine what it was like. Right. That was a lot, and <laughs> what like now? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, can we can we just can we quickly talk like... about
1: conversion therapy? <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, let's do. And I think that's one thing that Church of England is does have the right stance on. Mm. Boris Johnson wants to have an exemption. So there's moves to ban this finally, but he wants an exemption, I believe, on religious grounds. What's your position on that? You can't pray the gay away,
2: okay? If it's not a problem, how can you fix it? It's just a variation on the theme of sexuality. Stop agonising about it. Leave people alone. I don't think there are any grounds in which this is okay i have people contact me you know every few weeks saying we are a same-sex couple we would love to be married by you in your church and i have to say i can't do that and they say why not and i say because actually we have a legal exemption from doing that so we are legally allowed to treat you as second-class citizens and i hate it but that's that's how it is and i think what politicians are anxious to do this is such a signal characteristic of our times you're trying to balance incompatible rights okay so religious people want the freedom to practice their religion and if they have a very negative evaluation of homosexuality they want to have the resources to promote their view of that okay but that absolutely collides with the standard of equality that the wider society now takes for granted well hurrah i'm really glad it does But that's the problem, isn't it? Well, that's the political problem there, is that they're trying to balance two incompatible things. And I don't know how you do that. The answer is, just work this one out. And the answer is, there is nothing wrong with homosexuality. And if your faith tradition says it is, you need to look at your faith tradition. We've done it before. In the Middle Ages, it was absolutely forbidden for people to lend money at interest. The sin of usury, absolutely fundamental. The reason why Jewish communities were tolerated in Gentile cultures was because Jews were allowed to be moneylenders, because it was absolutely verboten for Christians to do that. And after a while, they realised, we're just going to have to shift on this one, because our economies will stagnate without it. So they changed it. And that, which had been an absolutely fundamental first-order issue, all of a sudden no longer was. Okay? Now, I reckon we could do the same, sexuality, simply because the model for sexuality that you would derive from the Bible and the tradition is a pretty paltry thing. When you look at it with the benefit of what we know about biology, sexuality, sociology, anthropology, we just know much more stuff now. And the more you know, the more it becomes obvious that homosexuality is morally neutral. It's interesting because a lot
0: of the time we hear really horrible negative things towards our community from religion so what advice do you have for our listeners that perhaps have faith and don't feel welcome or people that perhaps tar all of the church with the same
2: kind of homophobic brush i would say if you are a person of faith and you're also gay mazel well done you it's absolutely fine god has no problem with this at all the institution may have but you've just got to Live your life. Now, that might mean living your life and having that fight within the church or the temple or the mosque, wherever it might be. Good luck to you if you do. You might think, I don't want to subject myself to this. I'm going to go outside. And good luck to you if you do that. The important thing is you do not lose for a second the absolute solid knowledge that God loves you as you are doing what you do. Amen to that. <laughs> Amen.
0: You're friends with famous atheist Richard Dawkins. Yes. And and he has an incredibly different opinion to you.
2: Your friend Lord Harris, former Bishop of Oxford, has described evolution as the greatest of God's works, or one of the greatest yes. of God's works, and I think I'd, I'd, I'm very happy with that.
0: I, I, I'm sure you are. I mean, it seems to me to be almost
2: un- unbelievably weak argument.
0: Yeah. We often tar people with the same brush. Um, like, we'll look at all conservatives and think they're all awful. What advice do you have for people that immediately are just like, no, I'm not going to get on with you? Like, how can
2: we get on with each other? Actually, what I have discovered in my life is that all sorts of people can do wonderful, surprising, generous, loving, creative stuff where you don't expect it. And the opposite is true as well. I think also because I'm a vicar, right, I am responsible for a community of people who contain unimaginably different opinions and views and so forth. Not only do I have to look after them, I have to love them. It's my job. So I have to do that. So what do you do? Well, you look for the stuff about them that's exciting and charming and valuable and warm. And you find it everywhere. A surprising affinity can just occur anywhere. And I really want that to happen because we live in such a centrifugal world Everyone hates each other. Our politics has become impoverished, bankrupted by ideological madness. And you see people hating their friends, not just their enemies, because there's this kind of unstoppable impetus of screaminess. I've got two big themes for me in terms of what I like to do in the community. One is education and the other is housing. So we built a nursery school in my own parish because kids from the poorer part of our community were not performing as well as kids from the richer part of the community when they got to school. OK, we had some land, we sold it, we used the money to build a nursery school. And the Chancellor of the University of Northampton, a university which is often a university of people who are the first in their entire family history ever to go into higher education, believe in that stuff. In housing, I'm a picture of our local housing association, we've just built 50 affordable homes in the parish. Practical stuff, right? And I couldn't do that without Tories. Now, the me of the 1980s would never have thought that that would have been a workable scenario. But I work all the time with conviction conservatives who are on the opposite side of the argument with me on so many things, and yet... We work together to create housing for people who need a home, education for people who have no opportunities. That would answer the question for me.
1: Amen to that also.
2: (laughs) We have two favourite priests on our podcast
0: now. You are one of them. and the the other one? The other one is um, the Reverend Chris Hudson from All Souls Church in Belfast. Oh, I don't know him, but I like him already. Uh, you definitely need to chat to Chris because okay. we we'll just have the funniest time.
1: Thanks so much for joining us. If, if we're ever in, uh, where well, are you, Kettering? We, we, Near Kettering. How do you know about Kettering? Well, just because I've read your book, and oh, I, I, I I do remember <laughs> it vaguely because, and I'm not a football fan, but wasn't Gaza manager of Kettering Town for 20 seconds?
0: Yeah, he was. Right, well, that's enough football talk, lads. Um... And <laughs> <laughs> thanks for listening, babes. Do the admin and support a gay and non gay? Visit gaynongay.com/slash/donate.